What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility, just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, is in Qatar for talks on the safe passage of British nationals who are still stuck in Afghanistan. Raab says the UK will not be recognising the Taliban, but they do need engagement. He flew to Doha last night within hours of facing tough negotiations about the crisis and questions from a committee from MPs. During the Foreign Affairs Select Committee hearing, Dominic Raab defended his handling of evacuation efforts from Afghanistan. But the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, criticised his Cabinet colleague this morning, pushing back on the Foreign Secretary's view that intelligence was to blame for the UK being caught out. In an interview, Wallace said that it's not about failure of intelligence, it's about the limits of intelligence. So we discussed the fallout from Afghanistan today and joining us now is Labour's Bell Ribeiro Addy, MP for Streatham. Bell, very warm welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for being with us. Now, you recently signed an open statement uh, from a group of Labour MPs calling for the UK to take the lead in offering refugee programmes for those who are fleeing the Taliban and also on reparations to rebuild Afghanistan. Um, How many refugees should the UK be taking and where should they go? Well, I I think it's really important to note, firstly, that we can't simply, as the UK, wash our hands of this situation. We've been there, along with the US, along with other forces, for 20 years now. We would have played some part in the situation that's occurring now. So to to, to go ahead and, and... you know, say we're going to take a few refugees um, and we're not going to, um, and, you know, we, we've done great work and there's nothing more we can do. I think that's absolutely a disgraceful position to take. Um, and people keep asking how many, you know, what specific number? And it, it's not necessarily being drilled down to a very specific number. It's just making sure that we take our fair share. At the moment, the UK is is, is woefully low in compared to other European countries in terms of taking refugees. A lot of that has to do because of where, where we are, quite f- physically. Uh, we, we are an island just um, to, to, to the west of, of, of the rest of Europe, and so that makes it harder at times for, for refugees to reach us, particularly those that are travelling um, by land. And, and, and also we have to acknowledge that we've said that, or the government has said that they're going to take up to 20,000, 5,000 now and 15,000 over the next couple of years. But we have actually deported as many back to Afghanistan over the past three years. So what have we actually achieved? Who are we actually, how many people are we actually helping? Well, let me pick up, Bell, also on the idea about reparations for Afghanistan. I mean, that 
that surely is almost impossible. Should we be channeling money via the Taliban? I mean, they don't have a great uh, reputation in terms of their handling of minorities, of women's rights or anything like that. But they are the de facto government. But would you advocate giving British taxpayers money to them? No, absolutely not. I think that that, that, that point has been, been, you know, extremely misconstrued in terms of what, what was meant. We're talking about making sure these these go to, to people that are being left behind. And there are various ways um, to do that, presumably over the past uh, however many years. And, and, and e- even at the moment, there are, there are various um, methods of which to get support and aid to, to individuals. There are still agencies working uh, within Afghanistan as, as, as dangerous as it is, but nobody's suggesting giving any money to the Taliban. That's, that, yeah, that's, that's not the case at all. But are we then, wouldn't we essentially, I mean, is it possible to give any money to people in Afghanistan without it eventually or in some ways helping and aiding the Taliban? Is it not simply the same naivety and sort of false optimism about being able to change things in Afghanistan to talk about reparations now? I mean, you know, trillions were spent on trying to build Afghanistan in the 20 years of the war. Um, people talk about the, the trillions being spent, but I think we need to think about who who that money actually, as, as you said, eventually has, has gone to. Whilst I completely take the point of not knowing exactly, um, or you know, eventually money potentially going um, the wrong way, that's that's the case with a lot of the aid that we give out right across the world. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, and I think that's that is the main point that we should try. We shouldn't be abandoning people. We should be looking ways and whatever we call it we should be supporting people that are left there we should be supporting people who want to leave and who are not safe we should be supporting the people of afghanistan because we have played a hand in the situation they find themselves in but what role then should the military play i mean in the past what was said about the afghanistan intervention had many reasons behind it but it was uh, or became an attempt to to rebuild a country and try to establish standards of, of care for human rights, women's rights, uh, gay rights, uh, and that failed. But was it wrong to use military force to try to do that? Would it be wrong to do that in the future, to try to help people in other countries, if necessary, by using military force to, to ensure things go well? I, I, I'm more often than not opposed to, to the use of, of military intervention. I think history supports me on that. I can't think of a single military intervention in, in, in recent times in particular, but do correct me if I'm wrong, that has been actually successful, um, that hasn't ended in this type of situation where people have been eventually left to pick to pick things up um, themselves. And I think we need to, to, to get a grip as, as, as to when we actually do end up going in. Uh, because when we should, and perhaps I'm thinking about R- R- Rwanda, that was completely ignored. We left that and look at what happened in terms of, of the genocide. And when we shouldn't, um, I'm thinking of various instances in the Middle East, we have gone in and we have gone in a certain way that has over, overridden uh, local actors and not necessarily. So, so at, the, at this stage, no, I would not, I would not, um, you know, support any, any further, further interventions. We should always look to diplomatic uh, solutions first. And the idea that those are lost as quickly as we, we're told they're lost. I, I just don't think it's true. And, and the lies that are told to get us there um, in terms of intelligence, uh, you know, that, those are equally worrying. Um, do you think that 
British voters will really agree. Um, there's been a great deal of criticism about the Afghan withdrawal, the debacle. I mean, from Labour, from from experts, from Tory MPs themselves. But actually, do you think that vo- voters in the UK um, will do what American voters seem to be doing, which is accepting that we couldn't stay there on the ground for, for longer? Um, I, I think they may do. Absolutely. But I think what they will not accept is, is the shambolic way in which we left. Uh, you know, agreeing, agreeing with, with leaving is, is definitely not um, the same as agreeing with the manner in which we did it. But they are two completely different things. And I think many would agree uh, UK in the US that the way in which it was handled was, was the absolute worst way, especially given that they had an entire year to plan. Well, let me move you on to something else, if I may, which which is, I know, a, a, a very important thing and something that you have campaigned about, which is to do with uh, the care of black women, particularly black women having babies. During Commons debate earlier this year on, on black maternal health, you described the devastating experience of losing a child to stillbirth. Do you think that the government is in any way heeding your call for better targets for improving uh, maternal care for, for black women? No, um, they are they are absolutely... Not they are aware that uh, that black women, women of African and, and Caribbean heritage are uh, four times more likely to die in pregnancy and childbirth. Women of mixed heritage are three times more likely, and uh, women uh, of Asian heritage are two times more likely. But despite having those figures, uh, a question I actually asked uh, the Equalities Minister, they said as far as they're concerned, the numbers are still too low for them to consider targets. However, they would do everything um, that they could. Uh, you know, to, to see what they could they could do to improve the situation. Now, uh, as someone who's, who's experienced this personally, um, the idea that the number would be too low to 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 introduce targets it, it is quite distressing, and quite distressing for the women and 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 their families that have been through the same situation as well. How on earth are we supposed to measure our progress? How on earth are we supposed to uh, look at, at what needs to be done? Um, and, and give ourselves some benchmarks if we're not going to even set targets. And, and what does that say um, in, in terms of a number of the campaigns that we've seen uh, over the past few years? Uh, we know we're talking quite often about about racism, um, institutional racism, uh, the Black Lives Matter campaign, and to say that Black lives don't matter enough to set a target on saving them. I, I, I think that speaks volumes. Speaking of which, perhaps this also plays to the upcoming immigration bill. Uh, Home Secretary Preeti Patel, the National and Borders uh, Bill, Nationality and Borders Bill. You've got, um, you know, the, the other issue around uh, border protection. A record number of small boats crossing the channel this summer. I guess I would ask, I know that you've campaigned and been highly critical about this immigration bill, what can the the UK do, though, in terms of, you know, migration? Can Britain really have an open door policy when it comes to migration? Surely some limits have to be set. We've never had an open door policy. And, and it's something that's always been in, in, instead said. Um, and it's, it's something that I think is, is generally kind of... A, particularly banded about the media and has helped some of the the more right-wing campaigns um, p- politically by giving this idea that we have an open-door policy. As I said, in terms of taking in refugees, the UK is, is amongst the lowest in Europe. We simply don't take uh, the amount that, that others do. And we don't hear it, as many of them complaining about it being overrun. In terms of 
the amount of support that is, is given to refugees once they arrive here. We have to remember that instead of it being in-house, which was which was much cheaper, which was having local authorities deal with it, we have been given yeah. you know millions of pounds to companies like Circa and G4S. Right. Again, private companies that are uh, have close links to the government that are profiting off of all of this well, whilst providing a, a very shoddy service. And, and really what we need is safe and legal routes. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. A hidden jobs gap is looming uh, when it comes to the UK's economic recovery. About 2.1 million jobs here are still affected by the coronavirus pandemic, according to the Institute for Public Policy Research. Now, the think tank has warned that around 1.9 million Britons were still on the furlough programme over the summer, with a large number of those workers now at risk of becoming unemployed because the wage support scheme is set to finish at the end of this month, so the IP PPR saying that the government should extend it. Now, students facing financial problems have increasingly turned to cryptocurrency investment to fund their life at university. A survey by the Save the Student website found the proportion of students investing in cryptocurrencies had tripled in a year. Three quarters of those surveyed said they considered dropping out of their studies. Mental health issues and the pandemic were the most likely reasons, but 41% said money was a key issue. The survey found the typical student faced a shortfall of £340 every month as maintenance loans failed to cover the average monthly living expenses of £810. Well, this week, speaking of studying, the majority of children in England and Wales uh, have been going back to school. There are fears about the safety, though, of classrooms, whether they are well ventilated and how far the return will actually cause a new spike of coronavirus infections. This week also saw education bosses writing to Gavin Williamson demanding an additional £5.8 billion to help pupils in England after the pandemic. A letter to the Education Secretary set out recovery funding proposals, catch-up plans for the next three years, and said not investing in young people's futures at this crucial moment would lead to, quote, greater costs down the line. Well, the proposals, as well as increased funding generally, include significant investment in mental health support teams and additional support around extracurricular activities. Let's talk about the education situation at the moment with David Laws, who's chair of the Education Policy Institute. David, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us again. Um, first of all, I suppose a pretty basic question. Is it clear how well schools are prepared to deal with the return to classrooms this week? Well, I, I think schools will have been spending a lot of time over the summer months thinking about this and, and trying to put in place as many plans as they possibly can. But of course, it is very difficult for them to uh, make fundamental changes to their buildings and deal with issues such as ventilation. You know, school buildings were not designed for a situation where we have a pandemic of this type and not designed to be uh, sort of pandemic friendly. So it is quite difficult for uh, school leaders to do more than the government now intends, which essentially is to go on testing people's 
but otherwise to try to get schools uh, much more back to a sense of normality. And I suspect that, that schools and school leaders are more dependent upon other decisions that government itself will take, for example, as to whether to vaccinate uh, younger children to try to give them a greater protection from, from the virus. Mm. What is your view in terms of the attainment gap then now? I mean, when I was um, you know, doing pick up all of last term, it was a big topic of discussion amongst parents. The attainment gap, how do you assess it between rich and poor, between state and private schools? What is, What has the pandemic done? Yeah, well, it's obviously getting much more difficult now to assess what's happening in education because the exam grades through GCSEs and A-levels and other qualifications can't really be compared with previous years because, as you know, uh, they're now being assessed by teachers rather than through the normal exam process and the grades have been much higher as a consequence. But at the Education Policy Institute, we have actually been able to use assessment data, assessments that are taking place within schools using assessments that are given to schools by private providers, which they use to to keep an eye on how children are doing with their learning. And we've been able to compare how young people are doing in those assessments compared with how they did in previous years before the pandemic. And in our most recent analysis, which covered up to the spring term of this year, what we could see that was that right across the country, children were quite a long way behind in their learning, particularly in maths, where they were on average about three and a half months of learning behind where they would normally be. And uh, they were also behind in reading by about two months. So not as bad as maths, but still a significant amount. What we also established was that young people from poorer, more disadvantaged backgrounds were further behind in their learning and that some parts of the country, particularly the north and northeast were further behind areas such as London, the southeast and the southwest, which could be because children in those areas have lost more learning time because there was a greater prevalence of COVID in those areas. So uh, problems with school attendance. So there is a real uh, issue here about lost learning and it's much worse for some children than others and much worse in some areas than others. So therefore, what about the spending? I, I, I put some figures there, which uh, some people are on education are demanding £5.8 billion additionally to try to sort this out. I mean, we know that's happening all over the world. How do the sort of pupil recovery plans for England compare uh, to other countries? Are we spending the same sort of amount to try and make up the shortfall? No, we're not. I mean, so far, um, the government has allocated in a, in a number of different announcements some extra money for Uh, trying to deal with the consequences of the pandemic. But if you look at um, our plans compared with those of countries such as the United States of America, uh, the Netherlands and so forth, our our extra spending is quite small. I mean, it may only be, uh, you know, 20% or so of what's happening in many other major advanced countries. So I think that school leaders do have a very good case where they say, that if they need to catch up all of this lost learning, there needs to be additional financial support so that they can put on additional provision for young people, more one-to-one and small group tuition, for example. And actually, this is a real investment because if uh, young people don't recover this lost learning and if they end up finishing their education without the same skills and competence and qualifications, 
then the evidence we have suggests that that will have a long-term scarring effect on on them, their prospects in life, their productivity, their earnings, and of course also the tax that they end up paying to the Treasury. So if we fix some of the education problems that we've got as early as possible, this will not only be good for the young people concerned, but also it's a sensible national investment for us to make. Mm. What do you think... um should be done then in terms of what would be the best use of money were money actually available in terms of bringing um, pupils on because there has been so much talk of this idea of lost generations of whole cohorts getting through the system with with um, a lesser education and that affecting people and the economy for years so what should the money be spent on in terms of top priorities? Yeah. I mean, I think firstly, it needs to be targeted properly. We know that some young people in the most advantaged schools and areas have actually done very well with support from their schools and parents during this period of time, fortunately. But other young people have fallen behind uh, by many, many months. You know, I gave you those average figures of two months lost in reading, three and a half months in maths. Well, you could double that for some children in some parts of the country. So we have to target the money properly. Uh, because uh, the needs of these pupils will vary, we need to give school leaders a degree of flexibility about how to spend it. And my guess is that they will use it in a number of ways. Uh, firstly, they may put on more um, small group and one-to-one tuition for the young people affected by learning loss, try to bring them back up to speed. Some schools might decide to put on additional uh, classes in some subjects in order to um, catch up lost learning that's been experienced by the year groups as a whole. Um, and, you know, there is probably also a need for better support for young people with mental health, which seems to have suffered during the pandemic and which will hold them back in their learning if it's not addressed. And also a need, I think, to invest more resources as early as possible in the education journey, because we know that a lot of uh, the gap between rich and poor children starts very early yeah. in education. And there is a, a, a strong case for higher quality early years education, not just the cheap childcare that's been prioritised by previous governments yeah. to get parents back to work. David, what about something root and branch, something radical coming out of this? Some people I've certainly heard in education suggesting the lack of A-levels and, and GCSEs at certain points may have shown the way forward, that, that this is not a good way to run an education system, to build it around these one-day, one-period exams that dictate the rest of your life. I mean, is it the moment to make those kind of changes? I think it's certainly the moment to take stock of whether the exam system is, is fit for purpose. I mean... The government is going to have to do this anyway, because, as you know, the grades this year were so inflated, particularly for A-levels, that they're not actually comparable with previous years. And the government's now going to have to figure out, along with the exams regulator Ofqual, how to get back down to a sort of normal state and whether they can do that in one year or whether there needs to be a process of normalising grades over a period of time. And that, I think, should cause us to Think about, well, what are the exams designed to achieve? What should grading be designed to achieve? Should it be designed to signal a sort of basic level of achievement in in subjects like English or maths? How much of it is about trying to sort out the best um, students from others as part of the process of university entry? 
I think that this does give us a bit of an opportunity not only to let schools know pretty rapidly what circumstances they're going to have to deal with uh, in the coming school year, which they need to know pretty soon, but yeah. it also is an obvious time to take stock of our exam system and whether it's doing the things that we want it to do. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.